Hello, friends. This is the AlphaList Podcast. I am your host, Toby. The goal of the AlphaList Podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This podcast is proudly presented by DZ. DZ is a UK-based development marketplace. They help CTOs struggling to deliver on their vision and roadmap by combining core in-house development teams with pre-vetted nearshore devs to flexibly augment their teams, allowing for more in-house delivery. DZ ensures the right fit, intelligently matching from thousands of potential developers. Developer shortage is making the recruitment and retaining of devs even more difficult and expensive. DZ provides an alternative for CTOs with developers screened for tech knowledge, culture and comms and a UK-based oversight team with decades of experience overseeing each project to ensure smooth delivery. Hiring is fast via DZ delivery platform, kicking off projects in as little as two weeks. They offer a 10% discount for our listeners for the first free hires using the code EASYDEV2022 on DZ.com. Welcome to the AlphaList Podcast. I'm your host, Toby, and I recently had a recording with a CTO of a 10 billion in revenue and 500 billion in market cap company. And today I have a guest. Um, I think my my CTO friends will be way more jealous than um, on, the, on the CTO interview recently. And um, the guest is called Mike, Mike Purim, um, and he's the founder of Sidekick. And Sidekick is actually like an interesting project he's he's going to tell us about. Um, it's actually a tool that most Ruby people might know. It got like 12K stars on GitHub and it's very, very popular. It's both open source and commercial. And he, at a certain point, decided to make a living out of that. And uh, Mike, did I, did, I, did I forget anything about you? Um, can you? Can you tell us a bit more? Uh, sure. Hi, Toby. Thanks for having me. Um, the the key odd thing about me is that I, from day one, vowed that I would not hire anybody. So um, as, as you were saying, your CTO friends might be jealous because I have no employees. I have um, millions of dollars in annual revenue uh, with no employees managing anything. So it's just me. I do everything from product development support to billing and um, taxes and all that fun stuff, bookkeeping. Um, so I, I do a little bit of everything here at Contributed Systems. Do, do, you, do you still talk about how many millions in revenue you make or did you stop communicating? Uh, no, I'm, I'm happy to share those numbers. I did about 4 million last year. So almost exactly 4 million. Uh, and then this year, I would expect to do another twenty percent higher. So probably, I'll, I project probably about five million this year. Okay, now I'm really jealous. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how much do you actually work? 
um, as much as I need to really um, there's, there's always something broken, right? There's things when you're the only guy at the company, there's always something to do. Um, so I'm in tax season. So I'm doing taxes. Uh, and here in the U S taxes are a hundred times harder than in Europe, right? In, in the U S taxes have been gamed to be really difficult. And so I've got a accountant who does that, but I also do all the bookkeeping. Uh, so there's that. Um, and then of course I maintain all the payments and billing infrastructure. So I, I've got a couple issues there that I, I need to work on server maintenance and, and, uh, uh that sort of operation DevOps type work is always, uh, is always ongoing. Uh, and then of course, uh, product development sidekick 7.0, uh, will be coming out sometime this year. I w I'm hoping to have it out by RailsConf, but I don't know if that's going to happen. I think we're only about six weeks away from RailsConf and, uh, and I still have a couple big ticket items that aren't making a lot of progress right now. So maybe I should work more is, is, so, is what I'm learning by just telling you how much I work. <laughs> but, but you don't seem to be stressed. No, that's the thing is, is it's re recurring revenue coming in. So I, I have revenue coming in. It's not like I have to work tomorrow to make bills, right? I'm not charging hourly for my time. So I, I am lucky, very lucky in that, in that way. So, uh, yeah, I have, I have things to do, but nothing, no fires burning, so to speak. So, um, maybe we start a little earlier. Um, when did you actually, when and why did you start, um, getting into engineering? What is your, your nerd path? <laughs> um, so I, throughout high school, um, my parents bought me an IBM XT, which was 4.77 megahertz with a 20 megabyte hard drive. And I used that to go onto BBSs a ton. So it had a modem in it and I would call and I would go to all these BBSs and, and there would be forums there and we would post messages back and forth. Uh, we would download software, uh, And so I, I was into computers uh, all throughout high school in terms of just using them to network and communicate. I didn't do anything technically really with them, um, play games and, and, and read magazines. I built my own computer. Um, when I went away to college, I built a 486 computer. And so that was the technical stuff I did. And then once I got to, to university, I found that I was spending you know, 12 hours a day on my computer. And I realized, you know, if I have such a passion that I love working on this machine all the time, maybe I should go into computer science. And so that's what I, that's what I turned out. That's what I majored in. So computer science is when I first actually started programming. I never programmed anything until I was 18. Um, and then after college, I got internships at, um, Uh, an ERP vendor called PeopleSoft. And I did an internship at Microsoft. Uh, so I worked on the Windows NT networking team for a summer. And uh, I broke the Windows NT build. That was my claim to fame. <laughs> Is I broke the build and then, and then jetted off back to, back to school. Um, But, but from, from college and from those internships, I was able to get jobs in the industry and, and, and that that's 
just once I was about 22, 23, just started getting jobs. At, and then the dot-com era entered and I started, uh, uh, I got jobs at those, that first generation of, of web, web, web properties. Um, and, and that's when I started. And from there, I started getting into open source a little bit. Um, I started using SourceForge, which was kind of like GitHub before GitHub. With uh, like little more ads, right? And and spam and stuff like that, as far as I remember, right? Yeah, they 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 struggled to they struggled to monetize, so they were doing ads, I believe. That sounds right. Um, but uh, you know that that's that was twenty years ago, so this is all kind of fuzzy in my memory now. Um, but uh, from from there, uh, I I was doing Java web development for about a decade from like 97 to about 2007. And uh, that when in about 2005, I saw Ruby on Rails and I got super jealous. And Ruby on Rails just blew me away. And so I said, I want my next job to be in Ruby on Rails. And so uh, about 2006 or 2007, I, I got hired by a, a startup that was going to be built in, in Ruby. So I, I, I joined on there, but of course, when you're working in the Ruby and Rails ecosystem, all so much of it is built on open source. And so I just naturally, since I already had a, a bunch of experience with open source, I just naturally kind of gravitated toward building and supporting infrastructure that was open source based. It's, it's one of the things I love. I, I love open source and I love the collaboration. I love the ability to solve your own problems by reading through the source code and seeing how something is built. It really kind of dispels the mysteries around things when you see, oh, this is the code that does it. And, oh, this code's terrible or this code is, is beautiful or, or really elegant or really interesting in some way. Um, so as an, as an engineer at heart, being able to see the source code for something really kind of just explained uh, so much to me. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I did is I started developing infrastructure and open source based stuff and, GitHub came along. Uh, since we were working in Ruby on Rails, I was I was already working on a bunch of background job systems, and I, I sort of saw the need for a better system, and and that's where Sidekick came from. And it it, it is like in a nutshell, it's just like it just decouples long running processes from from the web, right? It doesn't doesn't block block um, your your requests and anymore, right? Yeah, exactly. It kind of encapsulates uh, a unit of work that you want to do and, and allows you to say, do that unit of work somewhere else. And, and so it's completely asynchronous, right? That unit of work does not return anything back to the caller. So you spin that thing off and it's, and it's happening somewhere else. You don't know anything about it. And so once you, once you do that, it enters into the sidekick world and sidekick manages it. It'll, it'll catch any errors It'll retry any any um, if there was any problems executing it. It'll retry it over and over. It gives you a web UI so you can sort of see the units of work that are that are in queued and in progress. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a there's a surprising amount of complexity to it, which is actually something that you if you if you're not involved if you never tried Sidekick um, you barely know right and it it. 
it, it's it's surprising that I don't know um, people go for an enterprise license of that from from the like if you if you never were involved with 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 such a tool, you would say mm, why why enterprise why not just use something simple why um, yeah. why why this uh, and and people still do and I think if you ever used your system uh, like I, I use it a lot um, you feel okay it it absolutely makes sense right and there's this, this good UI and it actually enables you to do your work better um, and I guess that's that's your pitch right that it it's it's it saves you a lot of work yeah and it it's it's a um, it's also a matter of having a tool that is supported for a long time right kind of like why do people use Ubuntu LTS you know long-term support because they know it's going to be supported for the next five years right well you can either you know, pick some random open source background job system that uh, you don't know how well it's going to be supported for the next few years, or you can jump onto the thing that is popular and well, well, you know, commercially supported um, by myself. And so that's the value that that people see is is they get these features that are um, reliable and well documented. Uh, but they also know it's going to be supported and they also know that they're going to be able to hire lots of people that have used it before because it's so pervasive in the Ruby community. So uh, that's, that's the, that's the pitch. Um, you know, lots of people just use the plain old sidekick that's open source and free, you know, but when you're a, a billion dollar company, um, you know, you budget for tools for your developers to use. And and sometimes part of that tool uh, budget is, is tools like Sidekick, um, where you pay, um, you know, thousands of dollars a year so that all of your developers in your company have a, a reliable um, uh, a tool that they can, that everybody can standardize on. With a nice guy that supports them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I try. I try. Sometimes I have bad days and I'm a little grumpy and someday, some days I'm nice. Uh, I, I must admit, sometimes you roll the dice, but I, I try to be nice as much as possible. <laughs> okay. Um, so how did you, did you actually accidentally stumble into that as like, was it, was it a side job actually? Or like, wh when did you make, make sidekick your, your main job and why? <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I wrote a blog post recently about, because I had my 10th anniversary. Sidekick just had its 10th anniversary. Uh, in January, because uh, I, I initially committed, I made the first commit in January 2012. And so I uh, posted a 10-year anniversary blog post where I sort of went through the history of background jobs in Ruby and, and, and Sidekick. Um, but the, the, the executive summary here is that uh, Sidekick didn't spring from nothing. There were obviously background job systems before Sidekick. Uh, in fact, there was three major ones, uh, background RB, delayed job, and rescue. And each one was an improvement of the one from the one before. Um, and of course, Sidekick was uh, an upgrade from, from rescue. And it just happened to be one that I decided to go the extra mile and try to commercialize. Uh, and, and I talked about this in blog posts back in 2012. I said, I'm going to be running some experiments here to try and 
make some money off this project so that I can long-term support it. Because what I saw and what I've seen throughout my decades of experience is that when you start a popular open source project, it lives for 10, 20, 30 years. And and the, the question really is who's going to remain around for that length of time to support it, to, to make bug fixes, to add new features, uh, and what's going to incent them to stay with the project? And so my, my question to myself back then was, if if I if Sidekick becomes popular, um, who's gonna who's gonna maintain it? You know, five or ten years from now, because if it's free, then you're doing all this work for free, and you've dedicated your life and all of your free time to helping r- random strangers on the internet, and and that's a that's a recipe for burnout. And, and so you see a lot of open source burnout. But the one thing I said was, if I can make money off of this. I can turn it into a full-time job, and now it's it's a job that I'm passionate about, right? I, I love Ruby. I love performance and scalability. Uh, I love building tools, and, and Sidekick kind of meets all of those criteria. So it's a job that I would love to have. I just need to be able to make money off of it. And so that's what I did is I spent, the, I spent two years um, – sort of developing the core platform and then a commercial layer on top that became Sidekick Pro. And then in 2014, I decided to quit my full-time job because I was making more from Sidekick than my salary at my, at my previous job. And, and so I, I quit my job and, and started my company, Contributed Systems, in 2014. And since then, it's just been a nice, slow, steady uh, increase in revenue every year, uh, generally a you know twenty thirty percent increase in revenue every single year. <clears throat> so, do you think you grow because Rails generally is still growing, or is it just because like word of mouth and people talk about it, and more more companies actually discover your commercial <laughs> version? Or I I don't I don't know how much Rails is growing anymore. Um, to be honest, um, I think it is a tool. It's, I think it's a popular tool and there's new people joining all the time. I think there's people leaving all the time. Um, but Sidekick itself, as it's gotten more popular and, and more features uh, and, and more developers working at companies uh, have grown experience with it, it's become a tool that they know and they they trust. And so as they go to new companies, uh, those companies then adopt Sidekick and, and buy the commercial versions. So I, I think the growth is just, is Rails developers learning that they can use it and, and that they can trust it. Um, and, and also just new companies springing up. So yeah, that's part of it. I, I actually have a theory that if more people like you would exist um, that want to make um, want to get paid for 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 the rail stuff for the, the for the contributions uh, contributions they make or open source contributions in general and and tr- start commercializing it then we would have far better open source and far better communities and for rails from my perspective it would mean that it would maybe gain momentum again um, like as it's got a bit little bit boring and there's like 
a lot of important tools that are not commercialized at all. Like, for example, there's a tool called Active Admin, which generates you admin mm. panels for your application. Uh, it's kind of a valuable tool, but I don't think that anyone earns money with that. Um, and this would yeah. be something that that should be changed, right? Yeah, it's one of those projects that I've told people, hey, there's there's there there's potentially room for a commercial version of Active Admin here. Um, certainly, a project like Django has an admin interface built into it, and uh, and and maybe that's where people didn't want to take that leap because it Rails could at any time add an admin interface. Um, the the core team has always stopped uh, at adopting a user model, and you really need a user model to have an admin interface. So. But if if Rails one day does decide to accept a user model, um, then suddenly uh, the admin panel is on the table as a potential thing that Rails itself could adopt. So that's that's kind of one of the one of the risks in creating any project is you never know when a larger product is going to create a competitor to you. You know, I've always one of the things I, I worried about a few years ago was Active Job and how is Active Job going to compete or I didn't know what active job was going to do with sidekick. Um, and it, and it really turns out, it, you know, it, there's still plenty of people that are using sidekick. Uh, so it really didn't amount to much. Um, but, uh, I, I've always, I've also always wondered rails is kind of based in Basecamp, you know, DHH's company. I've always wondered if Rails was a separate company that was more like mine, where it just like literally provided Rails the product, uh, how that would change Rails. And I think there would be more uh, push to adopt a user model, to adopt more functionality. I think Rails would start looking a lot more like Laravel, for instance, yep. where Laravel I, I, just has this explosion of, of products everywhere, right? So yeah, it's it's interesting to see how the you know how different projects work out and why. Yeah, funny enough, I just had Taylor Otwell, um, the founder of Laravel, here on the podcast, and we we spoke about like exactly the same and how he was inspired by Rails as well. I mean, it's so it's so interesting that like he like just reinvented a very a framework which has like some similarities and. Uh, similar features in a different language and then just just i mean it's highly mm -hmm. respectful um came up with a lot of components that should exist um and and just commercialize it perfectly fine yeah <laughs> that's yeah um, i mean he's got things like uh you know in the in the ruby world we have things like bullet train and jumpstart pro those sort of commercial add-ons that other people have developed um there's the pay pay gym has this like Stripe integration, the Laravel has all of that kind of built into their ecosystem. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, some of the things that uh, Laravel has built in, uh, the Ruby world has sort of third parties and other people who, who uh, sort of uh, support them and maintain them. You know, of course, yeah. Sidekick being a, another one. Yeah. And sometimes, or most of the time in their spare time and that I think doesn't add up. I mean, they ah. only has 24 hours. So when, when do you do that stuff if you're not, not mad, right? Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, DHH is making his millions every year uh, with Basecamp. So he has no, 
he has no incentive to lock down anything about Rails. He wants to keep Rails as open as possible so that people you know, adopt it as much as possible. Um, and so that's why I've always wondered if, if Rails was its own company where it had to make its own revenue, then would he have things like Rails Pro or you know, would active job be a paid, you know, add on or, you know, whatever that sky's the limit, but it, it's interesting to sort of have these, these um, mental exercises where you think how, how would that affect this? You know, uh, cause you know, money obviously affects, uh, incentivizes certain directions, shall we say? Obviously, obviously. Um, so in in the time you built you built Sidekick to come back to to, to Sidekick and uh, as, as not everyone wrote, knows Rails a lot here, um, what was your biggest challenge? The commercialization itself, or my biggest problem was that nobody had commercialized a gym before me, uh, and so I had to trailblaze this path that nobody had done before. And I'll be honest, I was blown away. Because Ruby Gems supported uh, a commercial uh, sort of, <laughs> it, it supported commercialization of gems before anybody had actually done it. I was able to actually just piece together this mystery and, and get the infrastructure to do what I wanted. But nobody had done it before. So I was like trying to figure out how to do, you know, serving static assets through Apache and how to get HTTP basic auth working. And every time you push a new version of a gym, you had to like update the server with uh, and, and authentication. And I was just trying to figure out how to do all this um, because that I, there was like literally just nothing about it. And so, um, You know, even today, I don't think there's much information about how to do it, except for maybe my blog posts, uh, maybe some other people have posted, but, but um, I tried to blog about it. Um, I put up a couple blog posts about it a few times, just, just to write something about it, to tell people, yes, this can be done. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, that was probably the hardest part was just trying to figure out how to do this thing that nobody had ever done before. This podcast is proudly presented by Sastrify. Sastrify is the agile SaaS buying and management solution for progressive tech companies to help you to consolidate all SaaS procurement in a single platform and reduce your SaaS spendings in terms of time and money significantly. Sastrify's procurement experts negotiate with your SaaS vendors, such as Google, Miro, Asana, or Salesforce, to get the best possible price for existing and new contracts, as well as for upcoming renewals. My company, OMR, is a customer of Sastrify, and we were able to save a lot of time normally spent on SaaS negotiations and reduce our software spendings dramatically. They have a large base of satisfied customers, such as Gorillas, Runtastic, and Westwing. Their promise is savings guaranteed. Sastrify saves you more money than it costs. You can get a free analysis of your SaaS tools now. Just visit sastrify.com slash alphalist and benefit from a special 50% discount for Alphalist podcast listeners for the first three months. And and how much how much marketing did you do? The marketing that I did was solely focused to Ruby developers. And it was almost entirely through my blog. Like I had been blogging for two or three years before I developed Sidekick. And because I had, before Sidekick, I had maintained um, the memcached client for Ruby. 
and I had maintained a couple other open source libraries that got oh, you know a little bit of uh, a little bit of usage. So I had an audience through my blog, and so people knew me. Uh, I had a little bit of a name. Uh, Twitter, of course, uh, was a thing by then. So I, people knew me through through Twitter and posting uh, Ruby tidbits here and there. So I just focused on blogging. So I blogged all about Sidekick. I blogged about sort of the financial experiments I was doing. So I, I, I kind of documented this in real time and, and people just got to know it. And so when I, when I uh, first threw out Sidekick to the world, almost immediately, um, you know, for instance, Andre Arco uh, almost immediately adopted Sidekick for his background job system. He's, he, you know, he's known as Indirect, uh, uh, you know, one of the founders of Bundler, right? So, uh, and Ruby Together. And so he's, he's a, you know, somewhat of, of a big name in the Ruby community. So he adopted Sidekick almost immediately and was telling me that it was, uh, you know, much, much better than previous systems he was using. So uh, people just started using Sidekick and promoting it with their friends and retweeting things that I was putting out. So the the marketing was kind of guerrilla marketing. I, uh, of course, had no budget and um, people chipped in where they could. Like I had people um, helping me with the web UI and design there. People, I had people, uh, I had one person uh uh, donate a, a, a logo, the, the, you know, the guy kicking to the side, that was a, somebody just donated that to me. And, uh, and that just sort of became my logo. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a, a sort of a crowdsourced effort. <laughs> and did you ever miss having a co-founder or did you have like a mentor who helped you with that? Um, how, how did you go through the path of actually like founding a company, um, becoming successful, it sounds yeah, like a lonely thing, right? Yeah. It's, it's hard to miss what you never had. Um, but certainly there are areas where I'm very weak and I, it's who knows what could have been different had I had somebody that was better at it. Like to your point, I'm not good at marketing. And so the only th only way I've ever marketed sidekick is just through my blog through Twitter, through, um, you know, support, um, public support and GitHub and that sort of thing. So I don't know what could have been possible had I hired a VP of marketing and they focused on bringing in venture capital startups. You know, I, I have no idea if that had worked, if that had worked or not, if that would have worked or not. Um, but, uh, I had a friend of mine who was an accountant or a CPA. He helped me learn how to do bookkeeping. So I had somebody show me the very, very basics of bookkeeping. Um, but aside from that, I just, I had, I had already been working on Sidekick, Sidekick for two years when I, when I founded the company and, and I just, I found a lawyer. The lawyer told me what to do to do the legal stuff. I found an accountant. The accountant told me what to pay, <laughs> how much of a check to write. And, and aside from that, that's, that's all I've ever, ever really done. Um, I live in a state that has no taxes, uh, no sales tax. So I don't have to collect sales tax for like local sales. Um, so thankfully my, you know, the, the taxes uh, have been really easy um, for my business. Um, but yeah, it, it's really hard to say what could have, 
uh, been different had I hired more or like if like, I always wondered what if I had taken venture capital, you know, could I, could I be a billion dollar unicorn now? Or, you know, you look at a company like HashiCorp, which started around the same time that I started my company, uh, you know, and they're a billion dollar company now. Uh, could I be anything close to that? I don't know. Are you, are you in a way jealous or just curious when you think about this? Well, I'm, I'm curious to, to know what could have been. I'm not, I'm not jealous in any way. I, I'm, I try to take a sort of a Buddhist um, uh, sort of point of view toward life. And I try not to be uh, greedy or, um, you know, desire is the, is the root of suffering, right? Attachment and desire and attachment are the, are the root of suffering. So I, I don't really need to have, you know, half a billion dollars in money and sitting in a bank account. Um, cause you know, that's, that's not happiness. Uh, so, so yeah, but I've always been curious, you know, how could the future have been different? Uh, how could my path have been different? Had I, had I gone down that path, had I hired employees, had I taken investment, that sort of thing. And did you ever, like, <clears throat> from my perspective, like, if you do open source, then a very simple thing to do is to try hiring your contributors, right? Did you ever think about that? Or or were you, like, from the start convinced that you better not hire someone? Well, my my issue with hiring employees is... Is, is hiring that first employee after me means that all of a sudden 50% of my time is devoted to admin and management of that employee, right? So I, I really go from having a job that I love and, and can focus on exactly what I want, which is typically product development and thinking about you know, new features and API design. That's the kind of engineering I love. Um, All of a sudden, I start to have to shift to being a manager and doing things I don't love, right? So, uh, I, I've I've I went down this path because I wanted um, uh, to do to do the things that I love, and and managing employees is I don't think one of them. Okay, and um, did you ever think about? like making a real SaaS model out of it? I mean, right now you kind of, you have a very relaxed, like from my perspective, relaxed um, uh, life because you 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 have to maintain a down a software that people download, right? You don't have DevOps, all of that stuff. I mean, only for your, your distribution. Um, did you ever think about making it like a, a real SaaS thing for other languages, stuff like that? Well, so what I what I can do is I could provide um, something like Iron IO, which uh, you package a container that run, knows how to run your jobs, and they'll they'll run your container on AWS, right? And they'll they'll make sure that your containers and your jobs are running and your queues are being drained. Um, that's a 24-7 job where you're doing DevOps. And that's that's a case uh, where you really want employees who own the pager 
and you have 24-7 support around the world. That's a scary thing for me to want to do. Um, that is a, a great example of where I would want to take investment. I would want to hire you know, five or 10 engineers to build out this system and to, to, to manage the DevOps and to manage the pager in case anything goes wrong. Um, also, you know, with SaaS models, you have a lot more of concerns around privacy, uh, data, um, at, uh, GDPR and, and, and those sorts of things. Um, whereas with my current situation, you, you subscribe to my software and you download it and you run it within your own resources and your own, your own four walls. And so basically when people send me surveys saying, you know, how much of our data do you have? How safe is it? I can tell them I have no data. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to sign any NDAs because I don't have any, any, anything to disclose. And, and that makes it, that makes my life a, a lot easier than running a 24 seven SaaS. Um, so yeah, you're right. It, it's, it's a matter of, I've tried to go as far as I can toward providing as much value as I can. But if I did go another step further, I would have to start to hire people and, and probably take investment. Actually, I'm probably at the point where I could hire, you know, four or five or six people to, uh, to develop a new product if I wanted to, you know, given that I'm already in the millions of dollars a year. Um, but I would also have to raise my prices. Like my price would probably have to go up five or tenfold to to adjust for um, the the value and and the and the cost of the thing that I'm running now. And um, I, one more thing I wanted like uh, I'd like to discuss with you is um, the complexity of introducing SaaS into your software. I mean. You in a way run a software which is running on 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 your machines, um, like the users' machines. It's 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 simple. It's um, as you said, you don't have to sign any NDA. It's it's running on prem. Um, and in the last years, there has been like a certain trend towards no code tools. Like I, for example, love Airtable. Um, but the more I build on behalf of it, the more <laughs> I get the feeling that it it solves a problem at first, but then it makes it more complex actually because you have to maintain the integration and you have to, yeah, um, uh, yeah like keep up with the, with their API changes and so on. What what do you think about that? Is, will we see a trend so, there that people well, go back? So this is this is one of my um, pet areas that I that I pound my fist on all the time which is the notion of dependencies. When you're building a company, you want to build using dependencies that you can know will last as long as your company will last. So if you're building a company that will last for three more years, maybe Airtable is the right choice for technology. But if you're building a company that's gonna last for 20 or 30 years, I'd argue Airtable is not necessarily a great dependency for your company to have, because now you're dependent on the company that provides Airtable to be around for the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, so those are the, the, that's the kind of thing that you have to think about. Um, I, when I built my, my company in 2014, I had, 
a, a couple dependencies in, especially in like the billing area. I was relying on one startup who provided my my checkout process to sell my software. And after about three or four years, of course, they got acquired and then they got shut down. And so all of a sudden, I had to I had to move from using this startup software to building my own software on top of Stripe. And that's a case where I'm moving down the dependency stack. So, right, this startup was built on top of Stripe. And so now I'm getting rid of that startup and I'm building my own stuff on top of Stripe. And now I'm assuming that Stripe is going to last for 10 or 20 years from now, which at this point I think is a safe bet. But you always have to think about dependencies and how much can you depend on them? Uh, and, and what, what is the cost of that dependency? Um, and, and, and if that dependency does go away, do you have a contingency plan to deal with that? But that also applies to open source that you just download and install and include in your product. Like I think log4j is like the best example, right? Yep. That's a great example. Open SSL with the heart bleed bug. Um, there's, uh, you know, the world is, is absolutely chock full of open source projects that ha are no longer maintained and, and yet people rely on, uh, or they're poorly maintained, right? They may have a maintainer who maybe puts in a couple commits a year to keep the build working, or maybe to, because, you know, it, it literally doesn't work with the latest version of Ruby or, or whatever, um, and so they do the absolute bare minimum to keep the lights on and to keep to keep the thing going. But, you know, projects like Rescue or Delayed Job, they don't have a lot of maintenance anymore. They're on essentially life support. No one's really maintaining them beyond the bare minimum. Uh, and so that's that's sort of intrinsic with these projects that have no no business model, have no uh, life support model. Um, have no support model, shall we say, uh, whereas Sidekick does have that model because it does have the commercial aspect. So uh, I work on Sidekick every day. But um, would you say it's still safer to use something like, let's let's say Airtable example again, something like MySQL instead of Airtable because you host it yourself, you control it yourself, you, you have the source code for it and so on? Um, even if you're not sure about like how well Oracle will maintain it, for example? Well, MySQL, I think, I think the longer something has been around, the longer you can assume it will be around, right? That's a, that's a rule, of, that's a general rule of thumb. So you can rely on paper in the printing press because they've been around for 500 years and they'll probably be around for another 500 years. Um, and so in that same vein, You know, MySQL has been around for you know, 20, 30 years now. Um, you can you can be assured that MySQL will probably be around for another 20, 30 years. Um, now, you know, Oracle with Oracle, all bets are off. But uh, something like Postgres uh, should be around, and I believe Postgres does have some sort of support model. Um, I think they sell consulting time uh, for people, you know, who are, are struggling with Postgres, um, at, at scale, the, the core team does sell support time. So, um, you know, building on something like Postgres or MySQL, I think is, is safe, but, uh, but yeah, you, you gotta be, you gotta watch out for those projects that are, are just, you know, one person working nights and weekends, so to speak. Okay. Mm. 
And still, you would recommend rather using, let's say, boring on-prem tools than, um, I don't know, the Airtables out there or um, the crazy VC-funded uh, stuff, right? Well, it's a, it's a great question. Um, the I think any system is always going to need maintenance. So you're always going to need to have an engineer uh, on staff for, for a system of, of any decent complexity. You're always going to need to have some sort of engineer to, to do maintenance. So the question is, is do you want to own this thing or do you want to outsource it? Um, I think something like AWS has proven that it has staying power and that you can rely on it and you can depend on it for decades to come. Um, I don't know a lot about Airtable, so I won't speak to Airtable, but you know, you have tools like Meteor.js was a was a JavaScript system a few years ago that was very, I mean, it was it was uh, supposed to be like the next big thing. And it was built on top of MongoDB. And it was supposed to be like Rails, where it had you now this integration with Mongo, really simple integration with Mongo, and it made front-end development really easy. Um, but it took v it took venture capital funding, and anytime something takes venture capital, to me that starts a clock that that and that clock is ticking down until that startup dies. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's a, that's another question is is um, this this support model that this company has is it is it venture capital backed or is it private equity backed? Because if it is, uh, I would be very reluctant to use it. Uh, for the long term, for the long term. If I would now start building a bootstrapped SaaS company, what would be your three key tips or recommendations you would hint me? The thing about software is that it's incredibly cheap to build. Uh, so I, my rule number one is be really careful about any investment that you might take. You You may not need it. Um, so many, so many startups in the software world take investment and then they have to show immediate profits, um, you know, uh, because venture capitalists, they don't invest in something unless they think it's going to, you know, go up by 10 X or hundred X. So, you know, uh, the, the question I would have is, is why are you building this thing? Are you building it to make money real quick? Uh, in that case, venture capital might be the right quick <laughs> might be the right solution for you. Uh, you know, to, you take a little money off the table, and then you flip the company in a couple of years, and you're done. But to me, that doesn't create any long term value. And so, to me, I I said I want I don't want to take investment because I want to create something that's profitable. And software is so easy to make profitable. Um, you just gotta you gotta keep your your costs under control um be very leery of hiring and 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 charge a, a good amount for for the value that you're providing and you can quickly become profitable um it, it it really doesn't take a lot to to be getting into the six figures and and now you're self-sustaining and and you can grow at your own pace or however fast that that the market will support you so so tip number one is 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 if you can bootstrap uh, and not take investment, you know, do it because then you get to, you get to reap all the rewards too. Um, what's what's number two? 
Number two is, is, is keep your dependencies to a minimum and do the bare minimum, right? So don't, don't build, don't build a, a Lamborghini when all you need is a, is a Honda, right? Uh, keep, keep things simple and focused on what the customer needs. My, the, my server infrastructure for serving my software is a $5 droplet on DigitalOcean. I don't use AWS. I don't spend thousands of dollars a month on some CDN and AWS infrastructure that's all co-located all around the world. I've got two $5 droplets running in, in different cities and that's it. So my infrastructure costs are $10 a month. Um, there's a little, t- there's a little more to it than that, but that, but at the core, my software just, it does the bare minimum, you know, it serves static files and it, and it's running on these really simple droplets. Um, and that's because I've kept things really, really simple. I don't run rails for my, I don't have any rails apps running my software, uh, to serve this stuff. Everything is the only software I have running on my server is Apache. So Apache just serves static files and that's it. And that's because I was able to figure out how to run the absolute bare minimum. Uh, and so that keeps my, my costs way down. Um, and, and, and so by minimizing those dependencies, that's just one less thing I have to worry about. So number three is uh, be careful with your business model and your pricing. You want to make sure that you're not too disruptive to the customer because uh, once you offer, you know, functionality for free, it's really difficult to change that to suddenly start charging for it. Um, I see a lot of people running things like beta programs where they say at the end of the beta program, we're going to start charging for this functionality. And that's great. That's exactly the right thing to do. You, you want to set expectations with your customer from day one that they're opting into something that's commercial and, and make that very clear. Um, that doesn't mean you need to tell them how much it's going to cost. You can obviously develop that over time and you can change prices over time. But you do want to set expectations so that people aren't expecting a free lunch, so to speak. Uh, otherwise, it's really disruptive and you'll get a lot of grumpy, unhappy people. And, and I made some of those mistakes um, from day one. I, I initially sold Sidekick Pro as a, a forever, as a one-time fee. So you pay me this much and then you get it forever. And I quickly realized that was a terrible idea. <laughs> um, I don't want customers 20 years from now who paid me, you know, 750 bucks 20 years ago to still be using my software and still be writing on that. So I, after about a year, of, of those types of sales, I, I quickly sent an email to all my existing customers. And I said, listen, I'm going to start charging a subscription here. I apologize, but no more updates. Um, the version, I, I gave them permission to run the version that they had forever. But if you want updates, you've got to subscribe. And, and so that's where, that's where I left that. And in fact, it's funny, a couple months ago, I had somebody contact me saying they wanted to upgrade because they were still running the version that they had paid for in 2014. And here it was, you know, seven years later, and they, they finally wanted to upgrade from, from that version they'd running, been running for free. So, you know, that's, that's, those are my three tips. 
Thanks a lot. Um, so <clears throat> I still have a little surprise for you. Um, I actually uh, bought um, an old laptop. Um, your wife sold me an old laptop that you used for for ages. I think it's a, it's an old MacBook Pro, and it actually she she forgot to delete uh, the hard drive, and um, it actually contained like an unreleased version of your Enterprise Edition with which has a hidden Easter egg um, built in, which is the time machine feature. Um, And it actually um, allows you to execute your sidekick jobs in the past and send it to send them to the past and and execute them there. Um, and uh, we now write write a job which is which is built to whisper something into your younger self's ears um, back in the year twenty 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 just before you started sidekick. Um, what would this job whisper into into your ears? First of all, I don't appreciate my wife selling my old hardware. Uh, you know, I keep that around for, for a reason. Second of all, that time travel job was some of the best code I've ever written. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry she sold it to you, but on the other hand, if you read some of that code, it's, it's, it's good, good quality stuff. <laughs> it is. So, um, <laughs> what, what do I whisper to myself? Um, I mean, geez, there's lots of things in life you want to go tell your old self, right? Probably buy as much Apple stock as you can. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, um, geez, in terms of sidekick and starting the business, uh, maybe just started even a little bit earlier. You know, I, well, I don't know. It's hard. I, I started sidekick right as I was leaving my previous job and my previous job, um, you know, Anytime you work for somebody and you're building software, it, it's uh, it's hard to know who owns that software. So I happened, I didn't start so, I didn't start Sidekick until after I had left my previous job. So um, so that I would own the the IP. Um, so I couldn't start it any earlier, I guess. Um, but I guess maybe I probably would have told myself the top three that I just told you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get the business model right. Minimize your dependencies, Mike, and um, and you know bootstrap because uh, you can do it. And uh, uh, you know it, it's funny though. I had I had a bunch of I had a couple of goals when I started the company, and it's funny how all of those goals have come true. In fact, I've already I've well surpassed those goals. So uh, so really, I'm I'm quite happy with how things turned out. I I don't. I don't feel the need to to improve on what I've what I've already done. Cool. Thanks a lot for for being my guest, Mike. Um, hope to have you here again soon um, and uh, talk talk about the future. Then. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Toby. Yeah. Glad to be you. here. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say in Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. 
See you in the next episode.